I'm here with Mickey Scott Bay Jones, and thank you for joining me, Mickey. Um, let you uh, kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Yeah. Glad to be here. Um, so like you said, my name is Mickey Scott Bay Jones and I work with Transform Network, among other things. I'm one of those people that always has like 12 jobs and 15 uh, amazing other things going on in life. But um, kind of my main thing right now um, is Transform Network and we um, equip and mobilize uh, faith-rooted organizers and activists and missional practitioners. And I'm the currently the director of training and program development. Very good. Um, uh, something that I've seen that you have been involved in is um, helping people to understand racism, understand racial issues in America, and especially um their own attitudes toward that within the church and within Christianity. And can you say a little bit about the, some of the work that you've done around those issues? Yeah. So, um, we, I mean, you know, I kind of deal with this both on a personal issue and then also through my work with transform. Um, you know, I joke now I can look back on my life and see how I've kind of been an activist my whole life. Um, but you don't really notice that until you look back. Um, and, and it's always been a lot of different things. Um, but, uh, so right now we're really focused on the issue of racial justice. We're going to be tackling that a lot in 2016. Um, at least in five cities, we'll be doing, um, some racial justice workshops specifically for, you know, faith communities, congregations, um, and not just single ones, you know, they can bring them into their whole community, um, because it's great for churches to be dealing with this, but, you know, as we've been able to see, this is something that entire communities, um, are having to deal with. And it has to be both kind of that local and national level to really make change. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and so we, we have these um, trainings that we're doing. We really tackled this in our national gathering this year. And um, our national gathering for 2016 is really exciting. We're going to be working with Middle Collegiate Church in, in uh, New York City um, with the Reverend Jackie Lewis. Um, and uh, they do a conference every year uh, called uh, Leading Edge. And so we've combined with them this year to do one. And it's uh, called Revolutionary Love tools, tactics, and truth telling. Um, and it's, uh, and it's all going to be on kind of how we, not just racial justice because it has to be intersectional. So, um, we end up bringing in, you know, other issues, um, like LGBTQ, um, you know, issues and, uh, immigration and, and just kind of solidarity with the, with the marginalized all around. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, I, I think a lot of times we talk about issues like racism, like racial justice or just justice in general. Um, and not everyone has the same idea of what those terms mean. I, I remember kind of early on in youth ministry and starting to hear the term justice. And I, I just related the word to people in prison. And, uh, and so, coming to understand a lot of those terms and the way that they're used in different in, in different contexts, I think is really important. Can you define some of those ideas? What is racism for us today when when different folks talk about it? What is privilege? What is justice? Sure. 
Um, it's, you know, we're kind of at this moment where nobody is racist, right? Like, um, <laughs> and it's, it's difficult to even have those conversations because, um, white folks especially get really upset. Um, there's this kind of concept that's getting more traction now called white fragility. And that's kind of how, um, when, when the subject of race comes up, um, that white people just freak out. Like it's this very um, visceral reaction to the thought that they would be considered a racist. Because at this point, like our kind of caricature of racism is, is like the flag, the, the, the Confederate flag waving, like um, pickup truck driving, um, you know, Southerner who is, you know, who, who like freely uses the N word. Right. And while those people exist, because I live in the South, like, trust me, I know they exist. Um, and they're my neighbors sometimes. Um, so, um, but that is like our definition of a racist. And anyone who's like, no, I'm nice to black people. Like, um, I have a black coworker and we totally eat lunch together on Thursdays. Like, <laughs> you know, that is like, you can't be, you can't have any kind of racism within you. You can't be participating in, in systemic um, racism or injustice, yeah. you have that one black friend, right? right. So it, we kind of like, it's like, we feel like we've gotten past it. So it's weird to still talk about it. Um, but, you know, racism, um, systemic um, racism is, nobody has to be racist at this point. We have a well running system that keeps racism in place for us. And so it's not necessarily um, a thing of, you know, I'm not saying white people are actively oppressing me. That's not, you know, what I'm talking about most of the time when I'm talking about racism. It's a system that we're all complicit in and and active in, even people of color. And so, um, you know, it's a system that, you know, incarcerates people of color at greater rates, um, puts down harsher penalties on people of color, um, higher poverty rates, um, lower graduation rates, all of these things that have developed over time um, and have been part of the system from the beginning. Um, you know, we have a nation that's built on stolen land and free labor. And so it's just it's just the system that we live in. And yes, there is active prejudice, which is the basis of, of racism. But for the most part, we now live in this system that we have to seek to dismantle. Yeah. I, I work in housing, and the a lot of the housing laws that were put into place, and just even the uh, the practices that existed from the beginning of the 1900s until the 60s, um, and even some beyond, I see really had a negative effect on um, on minorities in America. And uh, can you talk a little bit about some of those those issues like that, like housing or or law enforcement or those different things that have affected th- that have created problems? Yeah, I mean, housing is one of those places where once your eyes are open to that, once people can see that it's a really tangible way for them to understand systemic racism. Yeah. Um, you, you know, there's. Um, there are the laws that were actually put in place. And then there is just kind of, you know, the redlining that was a wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing that isn't really, it's not codified in law, but it's there. 
Um, you know, there are many, many stories of, you know, a black family going to, um, you know, a, a realtor and them being told, well, let me show you houses in this part of the city. Right. Um, you know, I have a personal family story. My grandparents, um, so actually my, my grandmother on my mother's side, her father was, um, biracial black and white. And, um, he would, he was very, very light skinned. And so he could, he would go, he would find an apartment by himself. He would come back with his darker black wife and they would turn them away. Wow. So, I mean, you know, this is a very real, every, every black and brown family probably has a story like that. You know, if they have, if they could get their grandparents to talk about it, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't ever really have those conversations. Um, but that's kind of the one big family story that has survived, you know, in my own family. Um, but there's all kinds of, um, you know, things where you can find stuff like that. There's a, a documentary that just came out. Um, it's, it was on Fusion TV. It's, it's like a cable channel. And it was, it's on Ferguson. Um, it's kind of, you know, a retrospect of Ferguson one year later. And uh, they actually explain how all these different municipalities grew up in, in the St. Louis area. Um, and it, it, so what it does is it kind of lays the groundwork of why Ferguson happened and why it was set up that way. And so what you had is you had this, um, you know, Ferguson, St. Louis, if you go there today, you see the shell of a city. There are streets that have many abandoned um, townhomes and houses on the street. I've never seen anything like that. Um, Nashville is still pretty much at the same height that it's always been in growing. You, you actually can't, they cannot build luxury apartments fast enough in Nashville actually. So, but in St. Louis, you have the opposite. You have the, just a glut of abandoned buildings. And what happened is as you had the white flight, they started marking off. I mean, some municipalities are literally, um, like five mile radius. Right. And they have their own court system and they have their own police department. And and what happened is, you know, kind of um, these small enclaves of white people made their own municipalities. And so then you have this system that courted off people of color into certain areas. Um, you also had things like Pruitt-Igo, which was um, or, you know, sometimes if you know, if you listen to especially rap music from the. Um, the, the 80s, um, you'll hear people talk about Cabrini Green, right? And so these high rises that were made, um, particularly for people of color, and um, they were left to just rot and squalor. And we and none of that worked, right? It just didn't yeah. work to people in high rises. And they thought it would. I mean, I've seen the old, you know, 60s film footage where they were supposed to be these beautiful, this supposed to be the answer and kind of way to get get these people into housing yep. and it didn't work. Um, and so, you know, housing is one of this kind of the, the very tangible ways that we can see how people were um, or where systemic racism has affected people, but still it's difficult, right? Cause you see it in working in housing. Like you actually see how it physically manifests, but I think if you've never lived in, or been near those neighborhoods, like for a lot of white people, they don't ever have a reason to drive sure. to those parts of town, you know? So they don't really understand that you cross this invisible line and now it's all people of color. 
Yeah. You know, like that's especially once you get outside of kind of um, the eastern seaboard or like, you know, New York, where they've had ethnic neighborhoods for a long time. Like where I live, there's no concept of like little Italy or little Chinatown or like there's no we don't have ethnic neighborhoods. Right. You know, and so it's a really different thing for other parts of the country that didn't start off with that kind of um, system. Um, and then it, and it was always kind of hidden, you know, that this was where the, all the black people lived or all the Latinos lived or whatever. So I think that that sometimes the perception from the outside can be, oh, well, well, the 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 African-Americans or the this racial minority have their own little community here. And so they can set up something that preserves their identity and creates a healthy community. So what's the problem? Sure. And, you know, there there actually is something to that in that before segregation, um, these communities were really good at least for black people, they were very good. Bell Hooks talks about this, about how um, at least when she was a little girl before, before, before desegregation, she went home to communities of color. Um, and, and actually everything was a community of color. So she went to school, the teachers were all black, her, you know, the, her classmates were all black. It was this beautiful community that very much was trying to grow her up into, you know, a good citizen and whatever. So then what happened with segregation, with desegregation, is that um, you eventually had those, those communities breaking up. Not only it started kind of with, with, with desegregating the schools, but they eventually, especially middle class and above, were, people were moving out and not coming home to that kind of enclave. Um, and, and what we found is that desegregation only really happened for a few people. It didn't really happen large scale. Um, I, I feel like I talk to people here and I'm like, oh, so do you live in a mixed neighborhood? And they're like, oh, yeah, there's like one black family, <laughs> you know, like that. And that's not really desegregation. We're finding out that um, our school systems are actually increasingly segregated again. Um, and so what happened is the majority of poor and marginalized people of color got left behind. Um, and their, and their communities became less and less resourced. And so while it worked out for kind of, you know, middle class and above black people, it did not work out for the majority of people of color who are still living in poverty today. And I think we just don't realize that, right? We're like, Oh, well we have Obama. Black people are fine. Yeah. Um, but that's a really small percentage of black people who have gotten to that level. Um, and, and so, you know, we need to reexamine kind of where we've gotten and what are, what the policies really have done. Um, and that's where, you know, like it's difficult, right? Because Christians, um, like, I think we have a hard time figuring out how we engage politically and how we like, um, like we feel comfortable with certain things, right? Like we can we can kind of get involved in abortion, or we can get involved in, um, like legislating some kind of more morality things. But I think when it comes to poverty and um, housing, those are things that we've tended not to navigate well. 
So why, uh, why do you think that is? I mean, I think since, since the, especially in recent history, a lot of the church world has come to understand civil rights as a moral issue and that there probably should have been a lot more white people, a lot more conservative, middle, upper class white people behind the civil rights movement. But yet we don't translate that to today's issues. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're really ripe for it. I I really feel like um, we're in this Kairos moment, you know, this um, special place in time where we're being called to revolutionary love, and by that I mean Jesus was really a revolutionary, um, and it was a new kind of love that he was trying to get us to get a hold of. Um, and that means a love that is not just with what you say, but with your hands, your feet, your your action, right? Mm-hmm. And um, if somebody's hungry, I'm going to pull the weed out of the field and we're going to eat today, whether it's the right day for eating or not. Yeah. Doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath. We're going to, you know, these people are hungry. They're with me and we're going to eat. And so I just, I feel like, but that, you know, that was lost, um, kind of, um, early, I mean, you know, we can kind of talk about Christian history, especially in the United States in a lot of different ways. Um, but we kind of forget that, that, that was an impulse in like 1700s, um, for some strands of Christianity. And then kind of you got the, the Billy Graham takeover that was very much like this internal you and Jesus kind of Christianity, right? right. And, um, and it's always been inconsistent because the very same people that were talking, very same white people that were talking about Jesus and love and Christianity were enslaving people and killing Native Americans. So there's always been this inconsistency, you know, among kind of the, the Christian elite and the, and kind of the white Christians running the country. Um, so, so there's always been this disconnect, right? Like they, it, it, it's always a little off. Right. Um, but I think we're at this, this stage where, um, it ha- it has to translate into something. We had the missional movement and that's how we started. We started as a transform started as a missional church planting network. So that's this, that's something that's near and dear to my heart. But I think what happened with missional, right, is it became, at, at its worst, it became um, just another way to kind of gentrify the neighborhood. Hmm. Um, at its best, it became um, like let's go into the neighborhood and and you know do nice things for our neighbors and get to know them and love them. But it didn't become, it it became this very one-on-one thing, not necessarily how do we really affect systemic change in the neighborhood, right? Like, how do we actually help um, with what the people that were here before me in the neighborhood, their, their real needs that can only be changed as they get their power back. And so I think that's the next shift. In, in missional living, I, ho- I hope it is. I mean, that's that's what I'm trying to impact is to say, okay, now how do you actually help your neighbors who are saying we're living under the thumb of police brutality and, and you know, okay, you're coming into my neighborhood as, you know, 
a white guy, mission church planner, how, like, then you, you know, how do you help? And that doesn't necessarily mean running a new program, right? It just means, um, you know, maybe making that space for activists to meet or, you know, using power and privilege to, to get an audience with the mayor or, I mean, there are just lots of ways that somebody can plug in and get to be a part of actually going from the backpack program at the local school, which is fantastic and kids need that too, to actually um, creating some change in the local school system because that's just as Jesus-y, but- It's it, harder. We, yeah, and we haven't associated- It makes it, waves. Yeah, we, we just, we don't think about Jesus going to the school board meeting. Sure. <laughs> we think about Jesus passing out food, right? So, but but I think Jesus would go to the school board meeting too because those kids deserve a, a good education as well. Right. So what what are some things that you think you think the church needs to understand about racial issues, um, especially predominantly white evangelical or mainline churches? What what do we need to understand about what's gone on in Ferguson with Black Lives Matter, um, with just the things that are happening around us today? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think we're, we're all in this kind of um, awakening time. You know, you can look, we can look back at history and see different kind of time periods um, of awakening. And, um, you know, 60s and 70s were definitely that. And I just, I think we're, in the next kind of phase where that's coming up. Um, and, and people, people keep asking, you know, well, when, when is this going to be over? You know, and we just had the one year anniversary of Mike Brown's death and, you know, um, we're currently still under a state of emergency in Ferguson. Um, and, you know, I have friends who, who were just in jail, um, over the weekend, you know, for this. And so, it's, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. So I think we, we do have to start talking about it and we have to um, kind of make some real, um, some real effort. And, you know, the church has made some effort, right? Like we had promise keepers did their racial thing in the nineties. I don't know if you remember that, if you're old enough to remember that, but um, <laughs> so they did their Kumbaya big stadium things where they talked about race. And then there was, um, kind of the Toby Mac, like erase foundation thing in like the late nineties. Um, and so I think that the church is right for some, you know, new way to talk about it. I mean, and we're trying to do that and other people are doing that. There are some really great kind of trainings and, and events and things like that. Um, and I, you know, the, I think the biggest thing it sounds so cheesy, but it does come down to relationship. Hmm. Um, it does come down to, um, you know, like I mentioned the white fragility, like white people kind of have to get out of their own way um, and learn to listen and not let it be about them, um, which sound, which, you know, I know that like to some people that's going to sound harsh. Like, how is it not about me? Like, I feel really bad. It, it, but it's easy um, to kind of get lost in your own feelings. You yeah, know what I'm yes. saying? Like you, you, we start to talk about race and it feels really icky. 
And so we would rather kind of get rid of that icky feeling because, you know, for much, for much, many of us in the church, like bad feelings are bad. Like they're like, you're not supposed to have the bad yep. feelings, right? right? Like we, how quickly can we get back to like, you know, feelings of joy and the, like the happy worship music. We, we, many traditions, we've lost the ability to lament well. And this is a time of lament. Like, this is a time of us going, oh, I thought we did this before. Like, yeah. we had, had this, we had Martin Luther King. Like, didn't we fix this? And we're lamenting the fact that we didn't fix it and that yeah. we still have so far to go. That you seems know? pretty important to me. I, I, I really relate to that in kind of the tradition that I've grown up in that just we're unwilling to talk about negative things or to yeah. at least dwell on them for very long. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's part of it is that we have to get, we have to kind of work through the feelings and, and some of that has to be like in, in majority white spaces or all white spaces, because what isn't helpful sometimes is when like white people come to me and kind of corner me and they want to work their feelings out with me. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not, <laughs> I'm not your racial counselor. Like, yeah. You know, like they need me to legitimize their struggle and I have enough struggle. They like, that's why it's so important for, for white people to talk to other white people about race. Because what we find is that white people don't talk about race. They don't talk about it with their children. They don't talk about it with each other adults. Um, it's become this like, you know, no, 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 don't talk about, you know, Susie being black. And I mean, I literally had a, a, my, I have a teenage daughter and we had one of her little friends in the car one time and, and they had just left an event. And I, you know, I was referring to another kid that was there and I was like, Oh yeah, Emily, she's a little Asian girl. Right. And she was like, Oh, you can't say that. And I was like, no, no, she's Asian. Like, that's, you know, like I didn't say the little girl was slanty eyes. Like I wasn't, that was Asian is not a racial slur. Yep. You know, but she had been taught that we don't talk about race. Yep. So that's kind of, that's a, that's one of the problems, you know? So it's, it's white people talking to other white people about it. Um, and, and talking to people of color. Um, but in a way that they're willing to make some mistakes. Uh, and I, again, this goes back to the like, nobody wants to be called a racist. Right. right? So we don't like talking about it might mean somebody's going to call something out that you say. And that's kind of, that's part of the risk you take. Um, but I, you know, I, I, here's the thing. I need the people who say they love me to take the risk. I need my white friends to take the risk yeah. of looking bad or sounding bad because I, I take a risk every day living in this culture. Um, this culture that I am more likely to die at the hands of police and vigilantes and my children are more likely to die. I need you to take the risk of having a difficult conversation. It's hmm. good. Where, where do you think we are right now? Are we, uh, are we moving in a good direction? Are we at a place where we could be moving potentially either way? Yeah. Um, good news, bad news, right? Like, I mean, so it's kind of like um, the point of, I mean, I'm 100% sold out on nonviolent direct action. I'm, um, I am committed to nonviolence as a lifestyle. 
That's how um, Gandhi taught nonviolence. Um, it is how King, um, both Martin and Coretta, um, understood and taught nonviolence is that it's not just a series of tactics. It's not that you go and you link arms and you sit at a lunch counter and you don't move. Um, that is a, a uh, that's a tactic, but it, if it, if it, if it just ends in a tactic, then it's not nonviolence, um, in, in the way that it really is a lifestyle. And so, um, what people don't understand though about nonviolence is that it often exposes violence. In fact, that's the point of nonviolent direct action is to expose the violence inherent in the system. Mm -hmm. And so um, when you see protesters like this, this past weekend, um, there were coordinated actions. And at one point, um, there's a there's a picture that's floating around Facebook that's Reverend Seku and Cornel West jumping a barricade at the Department of Justice in St. Louis. And um, so and that's still nonviolent. They weren't like bum rushing a cop. They're just hopping over a fence. And um, then they were, you know, forcefully arrested. Um, some people were um, were beaten and were, um, you know, were met with violence. Um, and what it does is it, it exposes how white supremacy, and I don't, I don't mean one white person, I just mean that the whole oppressive spirit and system of white supremacy will do whatever it takes, including violence, to stay in power. And so when those kids sat at lunch counters in the 60s and people put out cigarettes in their skin and their hair and poured hot coffee on them and food on them, what they were exposing was how this society that looked together, as long as everyone stayed in their place, that it really wasn't that the, that the society that kept black people from sitting at counters was violent. Yeah. The fact that I cannot sit where I want to sit. The fact that I, you know, have to live, you know, my father tells me stories of like a restaurant where he had to take his date to the back of of the restaurant to a little window in order to get food. That's a, that's a violent system. And so nonviolent direct action exposes that and says, no more, we will not live like this anymore. And so, you know, it's, we're at a moment again, where we're, where there are tactics um, that are leading, that is leading to more truth telling. And I think this is a gift to the church. If the church will step up and this is what's happening in St. Louis and Ferguson. A lot of people are like, they're, you know, the kids involved today, the young people, they're not Christians and it's not, you know, with the church, it's not like it was in the sixties and it's not, um, it's not your mama's civil rights movement, but it's that I've seen over the last year, the relationship developed between the clergy and the, and the activists and the organizers. And there, the, the clergy isn't calling the shots, but what they're doing is they are, um, they are sacrificially loving their communities and these people. And 
doing it in, in the, in a very Christ-like way. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is the opportunity for the church to say, are we truly in this to love people and to live sacrificial lifestyles and to like Jesus engage in this revolutionary love that, that, that met systems of power and oppression and called them out within the church and without, I mean, once you kind of crack open understanding that Jesus was, was both kind of a spiritual and, and political revolutionary, I mean, he, he called out systems of oppression. Um, when he, when he stood in the temple and said, I'm like, I'm here to set the captives free. Like he wasn't just, he wasn't just using fluffy language. Like he was literally talking about setting prisoners free. I think hmm. uh, that's my understanding of it. Like he literally wanted people out of jail. Um, then that, when you can see that Jesus, it changes things. Like that's when the church will get involved with, with our terrible problem of mass incarceration. Like okay. we just have too many people in jail. Period. Like if you like, that's just one thing we should all be able to agree on. Like too many people are in prison. Yep. You know, there are people in Rikers who have never committed a crime, never like, or well, never committed a crime and never been convicted. Like they're still waiting to go to court mm -hmm. and they be in Rikers for years. Like that's a problem. Yep. And the church should be like, I think that's what Jesus was talking about when he said he's going to set the captives free, but we just look at it as like this fluffy, he's like, he's going to set us free from our addiction to porn. Like, yes, that's great. And you know, he'll set you free from eating too many donuts and that's like, and set you free from negative thinking. And that's, I get all of that. And I think it's all beautiful and it's all part of the package, but I actually mean literal freedom from oppression in all of its forms. Yep. Yeah, and, I, I was just listening to something yesterday, I think, where where guys are debating Calvinism, and I just I just halfway through, I just thought I don't care, <laughs> you know these these things that we, we that take up our time in Christianity, and who cares? What it, it's it's not uh, really affecting anybody's lives, and and there there's still so much suffering and so many problems that we could be using that time and energy on. Yeah. And I think that's why it's, it's, it, it's so urgent to so many of us and it, it disrupts, um, the kind of the, our, our sensibilities, right. To see, I mean, many people have been upset by the disruption that was at the Bernie Sanders thing and right. kind of, that's been one of the tactics has been to do disruptions, um, and, uh, I mean, in St. Louis, they did this beautiful disruption at a um, symphony performance. They sang a requiem for Mike Brown and, and dropped a banner, right? They just, uh, and we've had, you know, shutdowns of interstates and all kinds of things. But um, a disruption, right, like that's what we need to actually jar us out of kind of this, this sleepiness that we've been in. And um, it's an inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's another way to look at it, right? Like God disrupts us. The Holy Spirit disrupts us. So how do you think that works? I mean, a lot of those things I struggle with because I, I, 
I almost feel like, oh, you're just making making people angry that might otherwise be on your side. Yeah. Um, and is it turning people off to the cause where they might <laughs> come on board in a different way? I, how, how does that work, do you think? Sure. I mean, that's all, that's that's a question that a lot of people have had. And again, this is um, this is critical. This is life and death. I feel like I like my house is on fire, and my baby's inside, and my neighbors are saying, "Could you? You just need to calm down. Hmm. Just calm down, and we will we will figure out how to get the baby out." And meanwhile, my my whole damn house is burning. Yeah. And so it's like. When there's a new hashtag every day, I'm with somebody else who's died. I'm not. Uh, I, I'm sorry that you are that I'm disrupting your symphony performance, but uh, you know, I don't want my 17 year old brother to be next. So I, it's just that it's it, we feel the urgency. I think people of color and marginal, marginalized people feel, and and allies as well feel the urgency, and so that's why. Yeah, it's going to be disruptive. And we forget, right, that the civil rights movement was disruptive. Yeah. You know, we've canonized King and and that 60s movement as like a couple of marches and like, <laughs> you know, some photo ops. This It was like 15 years long, depending on when you consider the start and the end. Um, and it started with Emmett Till's mother like putting his dead body, his, I mean, and if you look up the pictures, he was, his, his whole body was swollen beyond belief. It's a, it is terrible. Like it's disgusting and terrible. She insisted on an open casket so the world could see what had happened to her boy. And, you know, and they had this huge funeral and, it was, she was like, we're not, we're not playing nice anymore. My boy is dead and, and disfigured. And here we go. And, and th that's what started. The, a lot of people will say that was kind of the spark. I mean, a lot of work, groundwork was being done before that, but that, that kind of sensational, disruptive thing, because, you know, we had just mourned our dead quietly until then, right? Yeah. Like, it's not like lynching was not happening. It was happening all the time. But to put her son's body on display and say, you will not look away. And that kind of disruption was the civil rights movement. But we, we just don't remember that, right? Like we remember the, the, like the last five minutes of the I Have a Dream speech. And we don't realize what a pain in the neck it was for like, I mean, that was the point, right? Like, it was a pain in the neck that you couldn't go to your lunch counter and have lunch because these black and white kids are, like, doing a sit-in. So they would just close the whole lunch counter. So now you can't get lunch. Like, that was disruptive, and they didn't like it. But we've forgotten that, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yes, it will piss people off, but I think when people get past the initial pissed off, if they push past it, then they start to question, well, God, well... <laughs> Why would they do this? It's just, it doesn't seem productive. And, you know, why are they so upset about this? And, you know, and so hopefully that's when they start reading some of these 
think pieces that are out and, you know, start just doing some research and figuring out, you know, why, like with Bernie Sanders, right? People are like, why don't they just, why don't they disrupt Jeb Bush or blah, 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 which actually just happened a day or two ago. But, you know, Bernie is the guy we're going to move, right? So he, every time he's gotten disruptive, he's disrupted, then he has come out with something like a, a, a policy or whatever, explaining how he feels about XYZ. So it's actually working because he's realizing he can't ignore it. Yeah. I think I could talk to you for a long time, Mickey. <laughs> Things keep coming up in my mind, but I don't want to take all your, all of your your day. So uh, we'll we'll call on you again sometime. Absolutely, that would be great. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks for chatting. Um, could you share? Could you share if any uh, information? If anyone wants to hear more, wants to follow you on Twitter or um, know more about Transform. Sure. Um, on Twitter, I am at I am Mickey Jones, and it's M I C K Y Jones. Um, of course, they can find out more about Transform Network at transformnetwork.org. Um, and there's information there about our, um, trainings, about our roster of trainers, our, um, our conference coming up. It's April 15th through 17th, 2016 in New York city. Um, we've just put some stuff up about that and, and actually tickets are already on sale. Um, and they can find out more about our, um, our four pillars of love and justice, uh, at transform network. And those are missional community formation, justice church, contemplative activism, and uh, public theology. Um, so if they want to know any, any more about those four things, um, we also do some stuff on sacred wounds, uh, which is kind of church hurt and healing from that. Um, so, uh, you know, they can just find out more there. We have a Facebook page. Uh, we have Twitter. Uh, we're everywhere. So I would love to connect with people. Fantastic. Thank you for being here. We'll talk to you again sometime. Okay. Thanks.